0: off. Um, open to First Timothy chapter four. First Timothy. Chapter four, we will continue our study in this passage, looking at verse six to 16. This is the word of God. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus For to this end, we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct and love and faith and in purity until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the Council of Elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Father, Lord, these are weighty things, what we call the church, the ecclesia. Uh, We thank you for this pillar and buttress of truth, this household of God that is yours, Lord. It is not our church. Uh, Lord, you are the head, you are the leader, you are the owner, And Lord, we are stewards, and we are body parts in your body. And so, Lord, help us to know our role. Help us to see ourselves as servants of your Son, Jesus Christ. Deepen our understanding of that today. And Lord, would you help us to embrace this identity and calling you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been in this passage now for a few weeks. Uh, we have lingered here, and just very quickly remind us of Paul's argument in this first part of the section. Um, we talked about disciplining ourselves for godliness, and that that is very much rooted in God. It says that we rest our faith, our hope in the living God. To the degree in which we know God, we will desire to be like Him in godliness. And that desire is key for discipline. Discipline never uh, is what ultimately gets us to godliness. We must desire godliness and then the discipline for godliness will follow. That's what we've been looking at uh, the last few weeks. I want to push us past that in in this section and really uh, get at the the overarching theme of the rest of this chapter, which is servanthood, Uh, to be servants of Christ. Uh, Verse 6 to 16, that's really where Paul uh, is exhorting Timothy. He says what? Be a good servant, verse 6, a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's the Greek word for servant there, diakonos, very general term. Um, I don't think the NIV, if you have an NIV, I don't think they quite get it right with the word minister. Uh, It depends how we understand that word, I suppose, but in our day, people think of a paid minister. They think of a vocational minister. I think that's too narrow. I think servant, the word he's using, is broader than that. Uh, Jesus uses this same word in Matthew 23, 11, The greatest among you shall be your diakonos, your servant. Um, that would include ministerial servants, but all servants of Christ. John 12, 26, Jesus says, if anyone diakonosis me or serves me he must follow me anyone right that's broader than just ministers here's maybe the fundamental thing that that we need to start with there is a type of servanthood in the church that the church cannot exist without uh, the church can exist without a lot of things. There, we can uh, even be, you know, limp our way along as, as a church without many things, but not without the type of servants that Paul's talking about here. Uh, this is essential. Uh, verse six, Paul says to Timothy, look at it again. And Paul is a leader and, and Timothy is a leader. They're both pastors. And he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant. Of Christ Jesus. What, what is he saying to him? He, he's giving him leadership advice. This is leadership advice. We don't see the word leader very often in the Bible. Um, six times it, it shows up. But what we do see is this idea of servant. So for example, uh, we see Moses, my, not my leader, but my servant. Uh, so leadership Uh, is often called servanthood in scripture. Uh, Jesus, you remember, um, he's washing the disciples' feet, these men who were about to be the what of the church? The leaders of the church. And he's saying, uh, the greatest among you shall be your servant. As he's serving them, he's telling these leaders that they will be servants. Servants. So here, here's a little side note. Um, many of you have heard of the, the phrase servant leadership. It's very popular in, in our day that people would talk about servant leadership. That phrase was coined by a, na- a man named Robert Greenleaf. Uh, and he's not a Christian. Uh, he didn't get this idea of servant leadership from the Bible. Um, but from a 1950s work of fiction called Journey to the East, Greenleaf's ideas influenced a man named Larry Spears, who wrote a famous book uh, called 10 Characteristics of the Servant Leader. And listen to the first three of these 10 he mentions. Listening, empathy, healing. Not sure if that's what Jesus had in mind when he talks about servanthood and leadership. And here's why I bring this up. Because in our day and age, in the last 50 years or so, when the feminist movement has really taken off, you know, one of the greatest weapons in their arsenal to put down male leadership in any sphere, servant leadership, even especially in the domestic sphere. Uh, Many women may say, well, yes, the Bible calls you a leader husband, but a servant leader. And so you serve me. And you do this, and I need you to do this, and this, and this. And because he's a servant leader, he must obey the orders. And, and this gets played out at many levels, this idea of servant leadership taken from Robert Greenleaf. And uh, now, look, look, do we need to guard against domineering forms of leadership? Absolutely. Uh, scripture does that. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That guards against domineering leadership. Uh, Or pastors, don't lord it over those in your charge. That guards against domineering leadership. The scripture itself should guard us from domineering leadership. We don't have to change concepts and ideas uh, regarding what what many call servant leadership to do that. Uh, How do we guard against authoritarian leadership abuses? And here's what I would put before us. We all become servants of Christ Jesus. And we guard against abuses in leadership. Here's the prime example that I think the Bible gives us of this King David. Who had more human authority than King David? he he was the, uh, he was a monarch leader. I mean, he was an ultimate leader over God's people in Israel and God anointed him to that office. Yet he says in Psalm 84 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He continually uh, positioned himself and, and postured himself in prayer before the Lord, recognizing I'm not the ultimate authority here. I am not the final say. I'm I am under authority myself. And we see that all through David's life and ministry, uh, that he saw himself under a leader himself. And David was no perfect man, but I don't know of any case in which we can say he was an abusive or domineering leader, even with all the authority and power he had, because he understood what? He's a servant. He's a servant under the Lord. So he's not a passive leader getting pushed around by the angry mob and doing everything they commanded. He's not a domineering leader over those in his charge because he saw himself as a servant. He understood my whole life is grace. He said at one point, I'm a worm, not a man. All right. This man had a good anthropology. He understood himself and that he was nothing more than a steward uh, of God's rule over others. David's posture as a leader was to constantly submit himself to a higher authority and to not view himself as top in command. I think this is the attitude every Christian should have. Um, When we're serving God's people, we're actually just servants of Christ. Look at verse six again. If you put these things before the brothers, Pastor Timothy, you will be good servants of Christ Jesus. What's he saying? You're serving Christ when you serve them. When you're passing out communion elements, bulletins, when you're helping in the nursery, when you're leading music, when you're ministering in the counseling room, when you're leading city groups, when you're preaching sermons, you're serving the brothers which is really serving Christ. Um, I, I want to commend you church uh, because I think we retain servants better than, than most churches uh, that I'm aware of. I think that's because many of you understand what I'm preaching right now, what I'm saying. Um, I know of many churches that go through hundreds and hundreds of volunteers um, I mean, every two, two or three week cycle, they're having to bring in new people. They have staff members to only recruit volunteers. Okay, numerous members on staff to just recruit volunteers because you can't keep people serving. I would say that if, I, if I could dare make a judgment on uh, why that that large cycle of of uh, non ability to retain servants is, I would say. Um, It's because many aren't able to serve anyone higher than seven feet. There's no, there's no vertical dimension to it. It's so horizontal that you can't sustain service in the church when it's only people, 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 people. And there's no, I'm a servant of Christ. People get burned out. You get bitter at people. Because people don't appreciate your service. You get frustrated. You get mad. Because everything, it's horizontal. And that's not the way of the church. That's not what Christ has called us to. He says, you serve the brothers. And in serving the brothers, you're a good servant of me. Um, one of the best things the Lord ever did for my heart, uh, was early on in the church, he kept us very, very, very small. Uh, which, for me, did me great good, personally, because I would work all week on a sermon, and I would go, is anybody going to come <laughs> to hear it? I don't know, Lord. Um, and then the Lord, help, and why that was helpful for me, is because I re- the, Lord at, the Lord made me aware, you know what, John Mark, you're not doing this for them, Ultimately. Doing this for me. You're serving me. And that got me through many, many years. Uh, and, and it purges and purifies our hearts in good ways. Um, I've been able to, to lead for uh, volunteers in churches now for 20 years um, as a youth minister, missionary, college uh, leader, and, and pastor. And that's long enough to recognize that even when you're serving among many people who really love Christ and really love each other and have some maturity to them, it's very hard uh, to sustain service. And what I've seen that keeps people going week after week, month after month, year after year, whether you're paid or not. Because look, accusations come, attacks come, discouragement, criticism, just the the week in and week out dealing with your own flesh and the devil and the world and all the things that you deal with in ministry. What sustains someone, Paul says to Timothy, you've got to get this, Timothy, make this your highest aim to be a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just think about people. If you just keep thinking about people all the time, you will be continually discouraged. You will be continually up and down as they are up and down. Their moods and and, and spiritual highs and lows will make you spiritually high and low. You'll be all over the place. You can't sustain a long ministry like that. Jesus said, Whatever you do unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. If your service to Christ's church is service to Christ, you'll keep serving him till glory. Whether anybody notices you, whether you're thanked and appreciated, which might be encouraging, but you don't need it. What you need is to hear from the Father at the end of it all, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your, key word here, master. You hear that? Very different than just people, 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 people. Servanthood is, uh, isn't just what leadership is about, it's what, it's what life is about. And, um, you know, one of my sons asked me one time, Dad, uh, what do you want to be remembered for? I said, well, I don't know if I'll be remembered, but <laughs> if, I, if I ever am, I want to be known as a servant of Christ. And then this was the interesting follow-up question. Well, what if people think of you as just a pastor? I said, well, I'll, I'll have failed at my ultimate calling because my calling is to pastor, but my identity is a servant of Christ. And if father or husband or pastor ever becomes the thing I'm known for, my calling has usurped my identity. My identity is a servant of Christ. And the same is true for you, brothers and sisters. Uh, We must be very careful that we don't let our callings become our identity. Um, If mother, father, husband, wife, doctor, pilot, teacher, whatever, fill in the blank, uh, whatever your calling is. If that is put before or over servant of Christ, your whole life is wrong. And you got to flip it over. And get the order right. The identity is servant of Christ. And out of your identity, you're a father, you're a wife, you're a husband, you're an employee, you do what you do. Get that order right. It, it really does matter. And, and look, this is Paul. Paul isn't just telling us to do this. He thinks of himself this way. How does uh, Paul open his letter? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, I think about Romans. This is even more helpful. The book of Romans. If you go to, uh, if you want to begin to memorize the book of the Bible, I would suggest Romans. It'll humble you uh, and, and bless you because as soon as you get to Romans chapter 1 verse 1, you're going to run into this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Listen to the categories. Identity, servant of Christ Jesus, called To be an apostle. You you hear the distinction. And how he understands himself. That's essential. That we get that. I don't think any of us are going to do anything greater than be an apostle. Okay. Um, And he didn't see that as his first identity. Servant of Christ Jesus. Called to be. An apostle. Listen to Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important. You say, well, what does that look like? I want to get very practical. This will liberate you if you can get what I'm about to say. Someone passed this on to me many years ago and, and it just... By the grace of God, I I received it and have tried to live by this, and it's been extremely helpful. The will of God is not contradictory. That's what will liberate you, if you understand that. Now, what does that mean? Uh, It means if God has called you, let's say He put four primary callings on your life. Let's say you're a husband, you're a father, uh, you're an employee. And you're a member of a church, a member of Christ's church. Those are four callings that God has, has put on your plate. Being a servant of Christ means you don't have to disobey his calling to you as a husband in order to fulfill the other three. God's will for you isn't contradictory. You don't disobey him in one area in order to fulfill the other's. Why? His will is not contradictory. God doesn't set us up for failure. If he's called you to serve him in those four areas, he will help you do it. He's a good master. But if I make my job, my master and I'm serving my job above all, what am I now neglecting? Probably my family, possibly the church, Right. If, if I'm serving my family as Lord and Master, making all my decisions ultimately centered around my family, how does my wife feel? What are her emotional? I mean, is that, uh, what about my kids? Are they do they like? And, and and that's my ultimate determiner for what I do with my life, for how we set our priorities. What's my who's my master? Who's really my master? You know. How do you know if you've replaced Jesus as your master with something else as your master? You ask, what one area dominates and causes me to neglect God's will in the other areas that I'm called to serve? And whatever that area is, you found your functional master. The thing keeping you from serving your real master, Jesus Christ and unless we think there's any conflict between when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And you go, well, what would I have left over if I loved God like that? Well, apparently he thinks you have something left over because he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you give yourself fully to service to God, say, I want to do your will and everything you've called me to, you will have room to do it in all the areas that he's called you to. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, we're not moving very fast. We're still in verse 6, but I want us to see a few more things here. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now look at this next phrase, being trained. Some of your Bibles may say nourished another word we could use instead of trained being nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Who's being nourished present tense ongoing. Uh, it's, it's continually happening. I would say the minister is being nourished as he uh, is giving good doctrine to the church and everybody sitting under that and receiving that is being nourished. And it's a continual action. It's a continual experience. So a good servant of Christ are those who serve the word. Who serve the word. And it nourishes them and the people that they're serving. Which is what we mean by reformed on our sign by the way. Um, you say what is a reformed thing up there for? What does that mean? It, it means above all other things. We are a church that puts the text of scripture above all. That we believe God speaks to us through this. We test everything according to this. Uh, it is our ultimate We submit to Christ by submitting to his word. We submit to God by submitting to his word. He says, you're a good servant of Christ when your standard is the words of the faith and of good doctrine. The, The distinguishing feature of Reformed theology is what? Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. And the fruit of that is not some sort of cold academic just guy who knows a lot of Bible, the fruit of that is nourishment, health, spiritual life and vitality. Good doctrine produces more than just knowledge, but knowledge that accords with godliness, teaching that accords with godliness, uh, Paul will say later in this letter. And look, um, pastors can't force feed that. You know, you can't, Shove good doctrine down someone's proverbial throat, right? And make them healthy. Uh, This is a twofold ministry. Uh, The pastor is called to study and prepare and then feed the nourishing good doctrine to the people. And then the people are to receive by faith and to ingest and to meditate on and then to go and obey. Key word there, obey the good doctrine doctrine that they have received and I would even say you haven't really received good doctrine until you put it into practice until it makes some application to your life you haven't really received it at all and that's what Paul says being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have what look at the verse that you have what that you have followed see the good doctrine has to be followed it has to be ingested And it has to bring nourishment into our actual lives. This is why every church needs what I want to call a liturgical servant or servants. Liturgical servants. uh, Liturgy just means the work of the people. It isn't just the minister doing work. Everybody's doing work. I'm doing work to present the doctrine. You're doing, doing work to test it, make sure it's biblical and true. We're all discerning the word of God so that we can be nourished and built up and healthy. Uh, it, it's absolutely necessary. And I mean, what else, what else is, a, is a preacher supposed to do but to preach good doctrine? What option does he have if he's to just do what is being said here? Um, he he is a, a servant and he is called to put good doctrine before the church the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed it says and then he says you're serving Christ when you put now look at this phrase these things before the brothers these things not just anything these things so preaching good doctrine isn't something we do uh, just because you know Pastor Kent and I really like theology, so of course we're going to preach theology. No, we don't have an option. (laughs) It says to preach good doctrine. It says that's how you're nourished. It says this is how I'm going to be a good servant of Christ. Do I even have an option to do anything else? I don't think I do. Now, (laughs) whether people want that or not is another thing, but in terms of my understanding of my calling, that's what I'm to do. Um, That's what servanthood looks like for the minister, um, this is not my church. This is not your church. This is not even technically our church. It's Christ's church. And he is jealous for his bride that she be nourished with good doctrine. He's the one who set it up like this. So verse 11, that's why Paul can say so emphatically, command and teach these things, not whatever works, these things, these things that God has said in scripture. That's why when we gather, we sing and we don't just sing whatever we want. We sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. That's the categories he gives us. So we do that. We sang a psalm at the beginning of the service. We sang another psalm because God said sing psalms. Uh, we, we pray prayers of confession and intercession because God said to. Uh, we take the Lord's Supper as a gospel sacrament, a new covenant in his blood because God said to. Verse 13, it says, devote yourself to what? The public reading of scripture. We do that every week. To exhortation, that's what's happening right now. To teaching, that's what's happening right now. That order is significant. Uh, Calvin, Calvin put emphasis on the order there and the logical flow of that text in that reading. Reading the text, exhorting from the text, and teaching further to expound the text. Which again is what, how we try to do this. We, we read the word when we start out. Then there's some exhortations. Followed with some teaching, we'll even gather later in the week at city groups, and we'll continue to teach and draw out what God has said. Because why? He said, teach these things, these things. Not just a few times a year, but it says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So, so look, we're not pragmatists. I mean, we're just not, we can't be pragmatists. We can't just feel out whatever we think works. According to our understanding, we have orders. We have direct commands and guidelines on what we do when we gather and how we function as a church. Uh, We call it, and it's historically been called the regulative principle of worship. It just simplifies things. I don't have to be a creative, you know, Uh, I dare not reinvent the church. You don't want that. I don't, nobody needs that. We don't move with the shifting uh, waters of culture and just try to feel out where everybody's moving and, and then adapt to that like the liberal denominations do. We don't do that. We can't. Uh, we, we don't play politician and just kind of, you know, check the, uh, the, 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 the Uh, of culture and go, well, yeah, 10 years ago, I took this moral stance, but now I'm going to switch it because the culture is different, which is, uh, I mean, just shocking to see how that game works in politics. The church doesn't do that. Why? Because our doctrine isn't something we invented. It's been given to us. The church is an idea or our idea. It's God's idea. And he says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So why do we not reinvent it? It doesn't need to be reinvented. It will endure forever. The devil and all his, all his schemes will not take it down. We don't need to twist it or, or shift it around because it doesn't need to be. There's nothing wrong with it. There's something wrong with everything else. But not his church. Not his word. So when he says, speak this, his servants... Speak it. When, his, when, when God says move this way or move that way, his servants say, yes, master. Uh, when God says, read the end of the book that I've written, you're going to win. Whew. We take a deep breath and rest that the story's been written and we know how this will end. We're servants of Christ. Christ. We're servants of Christ. His word is our standard by which to judge all things. Therefore, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Then verse 12, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech and conduct and love and in faith and impurity. I want to say something else about youth next week, but um, I've got to remember this is a Greco Roman context and Paul is likely in his thirties and he's still being called a a youth. Um, And so Paul knows there's some people who won't take him seriously uh, and will discount his leadership because of his age. And uh, I would be lying if I said, you know, starting out pastoring in my young twenties, I didn't experience that Um, from older and younger people. uh, Despising someone for their youth. Isn't just something older people do to younger people, younger people, can despise younger people for their youth. And he says, don't let people despise you for your youth. And, um, and then he says something really helpful here. And this, this helped me early on uh, to get through some, some difficult things. Uh, He says in verse 14, uh, 14, remember when the elders laid hands on you. Now, why might that encourage a young minister? Because if people are questioning your calling, but older, godly, qualified elders have laid hands on you to say, we believe this this man is called. We believe this man is gifted. We send him out to do this work. You think that might bring encouragement to a young man? Absolutely. Paul says to Timothy, remember the hands that have been laid on you. Uh, But not just that. Verse 12, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, purity, and faith. So here's the thing that balances this out. Um, I'm not entitled to respect. I mean, I know, obviously, the pastoral office should demand respect just because of the office that God has created, but uh, respect is earned. Respect is earned. And you definitely just don't automatically give respect to a young person. And so uh, Paul says to Timothy, you've got to earn this through your love, through your purity, through your conduct, through your speech. You don't, no one's just going to respect you, especially if you're young. You earn this. And I've seen many young men earn the respect of people two and three times their age over the years by their conduct. It works. It works. It does garner respect. And so Paul's telling Timothy, you don't just need courage, Timothy. You need character. And almost all the qualifications for elders are character related. Why is that so important? Because Paul knows, Timothy, people aren't going to always treat you well. Especially if you're a good servant that nourishes with good doctrine. Many may not want that type of food. They might want entertainment. They might want what's easy. They might want what's convenient which often won't be what God commands because he says his path is hard. And so a thick skin, a thick skinned character is necessary to endure. Um, You know, y'all aren't in the process of putting together a search committee, hopefully uh, for a new pastor. (laughs) Um, But many search committees that are looking for, for, new pastors, uh they will look for giftedness above all how gifted is this man in preaching how gifted is he in leadership what they should be looking for is godliness how does he love his wife how does he discipline and disciple his children how does he how does he handle his own soul his own time does he just only sit around and prepare sermons to teach people or does he ever go out and just spend time alone with the Lord and the word and in prayer? How much godliness is in this man's schedule and time to dedicate toward that end? And here's why I say that Paul tells Timothy in verse 15, it's not enough to just teach and preach others. He says, you must practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And he says, persist in this. Anybody can run hard for a a short distance, minister faithfully for a few months. But if you're going to keep going and endure, you've got to persist. You've got to immerse yourself in the text. So if a pastor is so busy that he can't get off alone with the Lord, he's too busy. If a pastor can't continue to pursue lifelong theological education, in my opinion, he's too busy or his priorities are wrong. Or maybe the church hasn't allowed him to have enough time to do that. This is not our, my uh, situation or can't, or thank, thankfully. Um, but there are many men who don't, for whatever reason, continue to pursue uh, theological education. And they suffer for it and the church suffers for it. But when pastors have adequate time to nourish their own souls, to immerse themselves in scriptures, to grow in godliness, everyone benefits. Here's the word that Paul uses, or I'll use the word that the Puritans used and show that it's Paul's word. But the Puritans would say ministers need to have self-care or uh, self-watch. And they're getting that from Paul here, verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself, and on the teaching. And man, I I have just I feel very, very blessed. I don't accredit this to myself at all. This really just feels like a gift from the Lord that since I began ministry 20 years ago, I have had weekly accountability with other pastors. Weekly accountability with other pastors. Early on, it was other pastors outside of the church that I had sought out. When Cody came on staff, I met with Cody weekly for a number of years, and then uh, the last number of years has been Kent. We meet weekly for accountability, asking each other, "How is your marriage brother? How are the kids? How is parenting? How present are you in the home?" Uh, every question you can think that would be relevant to ask is we're doing that every week. And Paul, and that's rooted in what Paul's saying to Timothy here, it's vital for ministers to have this keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching and notice the two categories there life and doctrine theology and morality if a pastor falls where which what's causing it it's either moral or it's theological mark it down go look around if a pastor falls it is a moral failure. It is a theological failure. What does Paul tell Timothy to watch? Watch your life, your morality, and your doctrine. You should pray for us as pastors regarding those two areas. And every minister should watch their life in those two areas. This is what Paul says to Timothy. And I get these emails every once in a while. Somebody will send me I don't know if it's to scare me or or, or what the purpose of this is, but send me a a statistic about the huge amount of pastoral uh, burnout and people quitting in in the pastorate, not for financial reasons, not uh, because they're falling away from the faith, but because they're spiritually exhausted. And so how does a minister, and I'll close on this, how does a minister... Uh, guard himself from spiritual exhaustion. And this applies to pastoral ministries. This applies to anyone who's serving Christ. Uh, it's not this. This is what I read a pastor this week said, in answer to this. He said, here's how you endure all the difficulties of ministry for a long, long time. He, he, he said, you. You, the, the person in the pew that cares. Many may not, but the person who cares, that's how I endure for that person, for that person. I go through everything I go through. Now that may sound good, but I tell you, it doesn't work. And it's not what God said, because that person might not be that person caring three weeks later. Right? This is not a stable place to latch on to, to sustain your ministry, Paul doesn't say, Timothy, here's how you endure. Find that one person who cares. Latch onto them. Put all your hope in them. That's the reason to continue. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in these things. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. And above all, find your identity in your servanthood to Christ. Persist in this. Persist in this. Why? For by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. This, is, this isn't a game. Life and death are before us. Heaven and hell are before us. The stakes are high for the hearers and for the one speaking. Uh, these things are very serious. And I want to just bring us to the table with this thought Um, What is the starting point Of service to Christ Maybe there's someone here who says How do I become a servant of Christ Here's step one In fact you can't be a servant of Christ Until this happens You must allow Christ to serve you Before Jesus died He sat with the men Who he was about to bleed for And die for And he served them And he cleansed them with water on their feet. And he said, you have no part with me unless you're cleansed. And Peter said, then wash all of me, not just my feet. Jesus is saying, I have to be the one to serve you first before you turn to serve me. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust what he has done to serve you in his death. And in his rising. And everybody who has already done that. This table is for you. He wants to serve you even now. He continues to serve his church. And minister to us. And strengthen us. And so if you've been baptized in his name. If you are uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, please come and join us at the table. Uh, if you'll be refraining. Uh, please come to see me. If you have questions. You can also look on page uh two of your bulletin, and uh, you'll find some meaningful prayers there that you can pray in this time. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. We thank you that you didn't first give us commands about being your servants. You first served us. You laid down your life for us. And so, Lord, we've been given an example. And now, Lord, would you help us to go forth in the strength of your spirit and to do the ministry that you've called us to for your name's sake, Lord ultimately for you, and that we could be a great blessing to all those that we serve. Lord, help us with these things. Minister to us at this table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.